0: Today's message is a transition message between one series and the next. I'm calling it Unshattered Hope, and we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 31. You know, Thanksgiving marks this transition point in our cultural year. Uh, We officially sort of have entered the holiday period. We think about that word, holiday. Holiday. Holy day. And sometimes I wonder if we even remember what that means. And at this point in our cultural life, maybe it's better not to ask if we remember, but just do we know what it means because there isn't a memory of a holy day there. Thanksgiving was once literally a national day of thanks, and it has been turned into a memorial to excess and a testimony to greed writ large across our culture. It's become something of a farce. Thanksgiving, as one company has called it. We tolerate our family in order to be able to eat too much of the stuff we know we're not supposed to be eating anyway. We watch football, we get on our personal electronic devices as soon as is practical after the meal to see what's going on, what the best deal is, or who's doing what instead of living in the moment we have and being thankful for what we have. On Thursday, on my way to my grandparents' house, I drove by the Louis Joliet Mall uh, in Joliet. 3.15 in the afternoon, Best Buy's parking lot was full, and so were several other stores. you got to get the best deal, and I must admit, I'm not immune. I didn't go out and freeze, standing in line anywhere, but I was up far too late that night online trying to figure out what to get for my three children, and could I get a better deal and save myself some money? And outside, the world around us seems to be a teeming mass of chaos. At every turn, things seem to be unraveling, disintegrating, on the verge of collapse. There are wars and rumors of wars, crimes by those in authority, protests, terror, poverty. And apparently, in the last day, a person protesting the destruction of life by taking life. How does that make sense? We push aside those who need us, whether next door or around the world, and we worry about ourselves. And in a shattered world, it can be hard to hope. That, that normal, even natural response to the world that we see on the news may well be one of despair. You know, we hear stories of people being depressed around the holidays. We think for just a moment how sad, and we move on to distract ourselves so that we don't become that person. And just as Thanksgiving is sort of this, even in its all, all of its modern craziness, a marker of transition from whatever normal is to the holiday season, this week, today, here at Village Bible Church, is a transition from one sermon series to another, from 1 Samuel and Shattered to an upcoming Christmas series. This is the transition point. But in the broader church, capital C Church, the Christian calendar even amidst all of the chaos, turns to the season of Advent. It is actually the beginning of the Christian calendar, not the end. And so today, this morning, I want to take this transitional Sunday and look at Advent. To ask ourselves... How do we live in the chaos of the world that we have, and in our lives specifically? How do we live with that on the one hand, and how do we live with hope, the hope of Jesus Christ, on the other hand? How do we live with what I am calling today an unshattered hope? And we're in Jeremiah this morning. The book of Jeremiah is interesting to me. It's an interesting period of time. It's an interesting uh, story. In 722 BC, Assyria destroyed and annexed the northern kingdom of Israel. Jeremiah was a prophet in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah. And he lived about a hundred years after the destruction of the northern kingdom. In fact, Jerusalem would be destroyed about 135 years or so. So think roughly from the end of the civil war till now. Manasseh, the king of Judah, had worshipped idols for most of his reign, according to 2 Kings 21. And it was during the reign of his grandson, Josiah, who arose to the You know the story from Sunday school when he was about 12. He became king. And he tore down the pagan idols and altars. He financed the restoration of the temple, and they found the book of the law. Now, think about that. Found it. They had lost it. They didn't know any longer what God required. And when they read it, it exposed Judah's sins and would in many ways become the basis for Jeremiah's own ministry, which would begin around 627 BC. Jeremiah didn't exactly have a happy life. He is known as the weeping prophet. This is the man who wrote a book of the Bible called Lamentations. His ministry concerned the coming destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. Babylon replaced Assyria as the power in the ancient world. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would invade Judah in 605 B.C. and destroy Jerusalem utterly in 586 B.C. Interestingly, Jeremiah 39 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar knew of Jeremiah. And he told his army to look after him. The irony here is pretty thick, because Zedekiah, who was the king of Judah at the time, had put Jeremiah in prison for telling the truth. And so, Jeremiah is taken care of by the pagan king when his own king puts him in prison. In fact, Jeremiah is allowed to stay in Jerusalem with the remnant of Israel instead of being carted off to Babylon. We don't know ultimately what happened to Jeremiah, but it seems that he probably died in exile in Egypt at the hands of his own people. Why all that background? For two reasons. First, what do we see in Jeremiah's life? In our previous series, we talked about shattered expectations in a nation and religion and shattered emotions and shattered wisdom. And man, that looks like Jeremiah's life a few hundred years later. And it's not so different from that world of 1 Samuel, it's not so different from the world of today but I'm getting ahead of myself because there's a second reason. In the middle of all of the doom and gloom, in the middle of all the difficulties and the messiness and the muck of Jeremiah's life and of that kingdom, during that very period when he is imprisoned by his own people for telling the truth, and the enemy is literally at the gates of Jerusalem, there is a ray of hope. You see, Jeremiah is not a particularly hopeful book except in chapters 30 to 33. And here we see a hope that would change the course of history. A hope that, dare I say it, would unshatter us all. You see, from chapter 30 to 33, we see messages of hope that defy all logic And all circumstance. We see God who is active on the behalf of his people. When it seems that he would never come to their aid. And frankly he was well within his rights not to. Because the people have abandoned him. It's during this imprisonment. That Jeremiah hears the famous passage of 33.3. Call on me and I will answer you. And show you great and mighty things that you do not know. But today I want us to look two chapters earlier. Chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor, or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. For the past nine or so weeks, we've been looking at the book of First Samuel, the bad parts of it, the shattered parts. And so today, let's look at unshattering that world. Will you pray with me? Father, as we begin this Advent season, I pray that you would help us to see your hope amidst the brokenness of our world. I pray that you would show us what you would have us to see as we enter into a holiday period, that we would remember who you are and what you are all about, and that we would we would live accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what do we make of this time of transition, this Advent season? I don't know if you've spent much time thinking about Advent. Maybe you wonder what it is even anyway. And there's many different ways that we could answer that question of what is Advent. If we look it up in the dictionary, you're going to find definitions relating to a holiday season which are fairly obvious and not terribly useful because they don't really describe it. But you get a simple, generally, definition, something along the lines of arrival, probably a historical note relating to some Latin word that means to come. Ask a child what Advent means and she may refer you to a calendar and chocolate, right? If you ask a fairly religious person what Advent means, you might get a discussion of wreaths and lighting candles or lectionary readings or maybe you get a statement about preparation. But I think for us to really get a sense of what Advent is all about, first, we need to look back. And so that's point number one that's not in your outline. Looking back, a shattered covenant, and a shattered world. To my mind, Advent is all of those things, the wreaths and the calendars, the season of preparation. But when I think of Advent, I feel something much deeper, more profound. To me, Advent is the seemingly paradoxical combination of longing and hope. What is it that we long for, really? And why do we need hope? Why this time? Think about the past series of 1 Samuel. And just like in the early days of Saul's kingdom, we know that there is something not right in the world around us. We know that there is supposed to be more, to be better. There is supposed to be peace, what Scripture calls shalom. Shalom. We were made to be in right standing both with God and one another. And we simply are not. We know it as surely as we know our names and we know it in the depths of our souls that something is not right. And when we look back, and I mean really look back, not glance over the shoulder in an okay so I'll do it if I have to, but I'd really rather be looking forward to the next new distraction... But if we really look back, not in that nostalgic way that makes the past seem better than today and deceives us into thinking that it was better than it actually was, but in a way that looks at the story Scripture tells us, that story that plays itself out in our world and in our nation and in our families and, dare I say it, in our own lives, well, when we do that, when we look back in that way, we see the truth of Scripture. We see that our stories are not unique. That as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. We know Jeremiah states in verse 32, that even though God brought the people out of Egypt, literally led them by the hand, even though He made a covenant with them, they have broken it. And we also know from our own lives that we cannot look at the people of Israel as simply a bad example for us. In a very real way, they are us. We too would have broken that covenant. We are no different. The story compels us not because we can look down our noses at the children of Israel, but because we know in our hearts that we are the same as them. Think about the stories that resonate the most with you in TV or movies or books or whatever. It's not the ones that, where people are so much better or so much worse that they are unrecognizable. But it's the stories of people just like us. The Old Covenant was given to the people at Sinai. A people rescued. Jeremiah says that they are a people taken by the hand by God. And in Exodus 6-7, we read God saying, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. In chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, God says this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's a pretty amazing promise. What do they have to do? Obey. What is the covenant? Well, that happens in Exodus chapter 20 to 23. And it begins with the very famous Ten Commandments. And this covenant that Jeremiah refers to in, in verse 32 is the the covenant in Exodus. It's not simply some abstract idea that pastors and theologians like to talk about. The covenant at Sinai was an example of covenants, of treaties of the ancient Near East. It was called, this is what scholars call, a suzerain vassal treaty. It looked very much like other treaties in the world. The, The suzerain, the monarch, The king makes a treaty with a conquered people. The only difference is in this case, God takes the place of the conquering king. And he didn't conquer, he delivered. He has taken them out of Egypt. He will protect them. And he will make them his own, but they must obey. They must follow the law that is coming. And when you think about it, if the very God of the universe says, I will make you my people, that sounds like a pretty good deal sounds like a pretty good deal when you are safe and warm, even when the weather turns cold, when you have centuries, even millennia later, to know how the story turned out. We've heard the story all our lives. We know what happens next. It sounds easy, and why not? The greatest power in the world, Egypt, has just been defeated by a bunch of slaves, The gods of Egypt have been defeated and shown to be nothing by God. Why not obey? Sounds simple, but life is never quite that easy. Doesn't take long for the covenant to be questioned. They're in the desert and food is scarce and they're wandering and they don't have a home. And that nation will never have it easy. Even when they reach the promised land, there are Philistines and Ammonites, Moabites, and more. They will struggle even when they have a king. Their kings will come, and more often than not, they will forget the covenant. And they will lead shattered lives. They will live in a shattered nation and practice a shattered religion. And they will make shattered decisions born of shattered expectations and shattered wisdom. And that story is not just Israel's story. Go back to the first 12 chapters of Genesis. We see a shattered world. Earlier covenants with Noah and Abraham in chapters 9 and 12 of Genesis. And then covenants will happen again and again with Isaac and Jacob and David. And it is with this shattered history in mind, this longing and arguably shattered hope that Jeremiah is given a vision. Something new is coming. A new covenant and a new hope. And that is the second point. First, we have to look back. And second, we are looking for hope. What I would call a new and shatterproof covenant. You see, the old covenant was based on obedience. The blessings and curses of the Old Covenant were tied to the obedience of the people. And the people broke the covenant and God responded within the terms of the treaty. And in fact, it's amazing what we see in the Old Testament. We think of grace as almost purely a New Testament concept, but we see it over and over throughout Scripture. You see, the cycle of judges where The people rebel, and a judge comes, and they repent. And then the people forget, and they rebel. And then a judge comes, and they repent and repeat. Or 1 Samuel, like we just have gone through. No matter how many times God's people mess up, how many times they forget the covenant, or willfully violate it, He is there and willing to take them back. That is grace. You see, Jeremiah's own ministry is proof that when a king like Josiah turns back to God and the people are brought back to God, there will be a positive impact. Jeremiah says this covenant is new in verse 33. It's interesting because he doesn't really talk about the content of the covenant. But he talks about the way it operates. In verse 33, he says, I will put it in their minds and write it on their hearts. The old covenant was written on tablets of stone. It was to be read to the people and adjudicated by the priests and the Levites. It was a treaty to be obeyed. And the new covenant makes the nation of priests promised in Exodus 19 a reality. Because the new covenant is within hearts and minds. The exodus echo is there. I will be their God and they will be my people. God has not changed. But he has changed the way that he operates with his people. And this is hope. An unshattered hope. A hope that can stand even in the chaos and the messiness and the muck that so often surrounds us. A hope that makes all of the difference. And that is the heart of Advent. A hope written on our hearts. And as Christians, we look at Jeremiah chapter 31 in its new covenant, and we connect immediately to Jeremiah 33 verses 14 to 16. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah in those days and in that time I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. The Jews of Jeremiah's time would have seen a connection as well between chapter 31 and and 33, but probably not in the way that we do. It would take some 600 years before that connection would be made clear. And it would take Jesus himself to tell us during the Last Supper this covenant, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, in Luke 22. And it would take him talking to two people on the road to Emmaus who didn't even know who he was and he would tell them all of the things that scripture said concerning himself and that is the heart of advent the new covenant is not just another treaty it is not god giving up on the first go around because he was very tired of dealing with our failure and because he decided that the first draft didn't work out i'm a writer i know how that works you write the first draft and you say nope doesn't work Toss it, come out with a new one. That's not what God is saying. The new covenant supersedes the old because it fulfills the promise of the old in a surprising and complete way. When we read the book of Hebrews in chapters 8 and 9, we, show, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. He is the new and great high priest. Advent signifies the arrival of of the new covenant that cannot be broken because its fulfillment does not rest on us. You see, God himself has taken up both sides of the covenant. And when God is both the king and the son, the sacrifice, both sides of the treaty are upheld and they cannot be shattered. He puts the pieces back together because we have not, we could not, and we would not do it on our own. And that is Advent. So if Advent is, in its ultimate sense, the announcement of the new covenant, what does that look like? What should we see? What should we do? And this is point three, looking for Advent. In the here and now. The already, but not yet. In verse 34 of Jeremiah 31, we read, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. It's a beautiful promise. But Advent reminds us not only that the New Covenant is promised, but that we are in an in-between time. Jeremiah's prophecy does not simply say that the New Covenant will be written on our hearts. It says that it will fundamentally change things. It says that we will not need to teach, that we will know. And it seems, as we look around in the chaos of our world, that, that time has not yet come to the pass. Because we still do need to teach one another, and not everyone does know God. So what do we do with this? We look at our own hearts and we see our own flaws. We see the chaos in the world around us. And all too often, we have to continue picking up the pieces of the shattered lives around us. Sometimes even our own. What do we do? Because the new covenant promises peace and yet there is war. It promises oneness with God who often seems very distant from us. As distant as God must have seemed to Jeremiah. Imprisoned by his king. Surrounded by his enemies. With little hope other than the word of a God he could not see. Not so different from us I would say. So perhaps we're looking at this verse wrong when we... Wonder why we do not feel changed. Perhaps we're looking at it wrong when we look at the shattered remains of the lives that we aspired to. And those around us and say, what gives? You see, because I think that what God is telling Jeremiah here is not that all people will know him. But that his people will know him. The Holy Spirit will teach them. In Ezekiel 34, verses 26 and 27, God promises a new spirit. God's Holy Spirit will make it possible for His people, for us, to follow Him. And Jesus echoes this promise in John 14, 15 to 17, where He promises to ask the Father to send the Spirit. A Spirit the world, He says, cannot... Receive Because they're not looking for him, and they can't recognize him even if they were. And further, when we stop and think about it, while we don't always do what we want, as believers, when we sin, the Spirit continues to press on us. No matter if we are great or small, young or old. How often have you followed after your own will, your own desires, while ignoring that still small voice of the Spirit, who never ceases to whisper deep within, convicting us of the truth, of what is right, of what being with God is actually all about? I know I have. I have actively resisted what the Spirit says to me, and I've known it full well. The Spirit speaks to us in the words of Scripture and through the words of His people. And He is the voice of God in our hearts as believers that we cannot shake even when we want to. We can ignore Him for a while. But He will always come around. You see, we are forgiven because of Christ. And in Christ, that new... Covenant is fulfilled, and the Spirit writes that covenant on our hearts. And the question we have to ask ourselves is simple. Are we listening? Are we willing to listen? It's a question that sometimes I honestly don't want to face. But even so, even with the idea that the Spirit has written that covenant on my heart. I know, we know that there is more. That the peace the angels proclaimed to shepherds in a field somewhere in Israel was not meant to be a merely internal peace. But a real life, lived out in the world we live in sort of a peace. Peace. The picture of God's kingdom in scripture is not simply one of inner calm amidst chaos. But actual honest to goodness coming of God among us. A peace unlike any we could know. A peace that says senseless killings and senseless deaths and poverty and disease are not the way that it is supposed to be. So what does Advent say to that? You see, Advent is not yet Christmas. Advent is the season of preparation, of longing for renewed hope. Jesus is not yet here. The incarnation is on the doorstep, but the door is not yet open. And this is the part I don't like. But it is the part that is nevertheless It always rings true to me. We live in the in-between time. Church tradition tells me that the time of Advent is the time of preparation. We prepare our hearts for the coming of the Messiah, for the birth of Jesus and his awaited second coming. There is something terribly fitting then, I think, that Advent occurs in conjunction with, or probably more accurately at this point, at the same time as our cultural obsession with things. The irony of starting the season of Advent on the same weekend in which we get up at ridiculous hours to stand in line for the best deal on the latest what's-it that we simply have to have is not lost on me. Because we are all longing for something to fill us up. And every year at this time we try something new. Every year it's the same. And every year, the church tells us quietly, something is coming. And the church says it's the same something every year. It is the same thing that we ignore year in and year out. And of course, it is not really a something, but a someone. I long for something more than the stuff. A something to come and to rescue me from the inanity of it all to show me a way to be in the world that is right and true, to save me. This is my longing, and I know I am not alone. You see, we are caught in the in-between time, the already but not yet of the Advent season, between the incarnation and the second coming, between fulfillment begun and fulfillment accomplished. So today... As we set out in the start of Advent season, I would ask that we set aside a moment from the hustle and bustle and contemplate just what it is we're longing for. Really longing for. What are those around you longing for? Because all of the stuff in the world can't get you or anyone else there. What would happen if this Christmas season, this Advent... We stopped to ask how it is we are to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, the fulfillment of the new covenant. What if we stopped looking to fill the holes in our lives with stuff and started looking to fill it with the only thing that can ever take up that space? That gaping wound. What if we were to set aside time and energy to prepare our hearts for the coming Christ? Would we know peace then? Would our families and our friends notice a difference in us What would happen if between now and Christmas, it's 26 days? What if we decided not to fight imaginary battles over Starbucks cups and whether or not somebody said Merry Christmas to us in a store that doesn't care about Christmas anyway because all they want is our money? What if instead we lived as if the new covenant was actually written in our hearts? And I must admit that it's hard because... It's more than a little bit frightening to contemplate. You know why? Because when we do that, when I do that, I have to get out of the driver's seat of my own life. I have to actually surrender to God. This is, after all, what a covenant requires. I have to listen to the voice of the Spirit intently because I become very good at throwing my own inner voice and making it sound quite pious when in fact it is very selfish. So let's get practical. What can we actually do? After all, 1 Samuel has shown us, and D.A. Carson, a pastor and theologian, has said, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. So, I have a few practical suggestions in the last couple of minutes. Find an Advent devotional to go through with your family or even on your own. The four weeks of Advent begin today. And each week is usually given a theme. Different devotionals, different reading plans do it differently. But four I suggest are hope, preparation, joy, and love. Use the coming Christmas sermons, whether here or elsewhere... As a way to jumpstart your thinking. Perhaps, second, light Advent candles or, and read the Christmas story together. Short of that, find a reading plan. You can find them on version or online or in a host of other places. And it's amazing when you do this. These reading plans often are Old Testament and New Testament passages and Psalms. When you do this, you see that both Testaments speak. With one voice of the new covenant. Third. This might be the hardest one. At least for me. Ask yourself daily. God. Are you in the driver's seat or am I? And then be willing to get out. Pray. Ask God to help you see the reality of his good news. And what he has done. Ask him to prepare you for his birth and his second coming. How about this one? This is the hard one. How about this? We act like him toward others. Start with those closest to you. Because this is the time of year when expectations and stress stress levels keep going up and up and up and they get the best of us and our fuses get short and we snap and we get irritated and aggravated and we lash out when we know better and we're slow to apologize and to accept the blame that we know is rightfully ours. We are to model Christ to all. I told you I was supposed to be here at the beginning of October. I was not able to be here because that Sunday I was in the hospital. I got sick with what I thought was the flu and ended up on Thursday afternoon in the hospital and didn't get out till Sunday. And you know when you sort of know something's wrong, but you don't want to know something's wrong because then you have to actually deal with it? That's what it was for me. And so some of you know this, but most of you probably don't. I had gone to the doctor on Tuesday, done some blood work. I ended up going back on Thursday, and the new doctor said, I can rerun these tests, but I know what I'm going to see. Your blood sugars are going to be worse, and they're going to rerun these tests when you go to the the ER anyway. She said, you're going to the ER right now. So my wife drove me over there, and by this time it was... The the vomiting was getting nasty because I hadn't eaten in four days, five days. And I got admitted. And I saw a doctor for a few minutes. And sometime later, he came back. And I have no idea how long it was because I was sort of incoherent at that point. And he said, well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you are diabetic. It's not exactly what I was looking for at almost 44 years old. What do you mean I'm almost diabetic? And so I, sp- I spent four days in the hospital. And on Thursday night, my wife is texting Rachel Eastman, who's a friend of ours from the Sugar Grove campus. Their nine-year-old daughter is type 1 diabetic. She is on an insulin pump. And so Loretta's texting Rachel, and I told her, tell Rachel that Lydia is going to have to be my teacher now. And she got a text back. Well, I've already talked to Lydia, and she's already said she's writing you a letter of all the things you need to do. And a week later, I got a care package, and I got this letter from a nine-year-old girl. Dear Mr. O'Brien, hello. I heard you have type 1 diabetes. I brought you something. The bar's or granola bar kind of things and juice bar and juice boxes are for your lows or to snack on. The other stuff is for diabetes. It was stuff like gauze pads and a box to put needles in and things like that. How are you feeling? How long did you stay in the hospital? How are your blood sugars? Nine years old. Do you understand it? One very helpful thing that I have is a Dexcom. It checks my blood sugars every five minutes, exclamation point. It's really nice. Maybe your insurance company will let you have one soon. Her father is an insurance agent, just saying. Are you on a pump or do you take shots? I'm on a pump and it's really fun and nice because you get to press a lot of buttons. My brothers sometimes do it and they love it. If you're really stressed out, here's a really good verse for you to remember. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Matthew 6:34. Well, I hope you have a great day. Oh, and remember God did this all for a reason. Like he gave me diabetes for a reason and I still haven't figured it out. Well, bye. Love Lydia. I read that letter for a very important reason. Because, one, that kid gets it. Which is a testimony to her parents, but also to God working in a nine-year-old kid. If we want to model Christ, I told the elders the the very first night I was able to be back at a meeting, you want to know what Jesus looks like? He looks like that nine-year-old girl. Who was willing... To take the time and the effort to reach out to me, a friend of her parents, because of something that I was going through. When we do that, when we get ourselves out of the driver's seat, we show Christ to the world around us. You know, there's a statement that's often heard, preach the gospel if necessary use words. It's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. I have my doubts that he actually said it. I understand the sentiment because our actions are more powerful than our words often. And it's true as far as it goes. But Christianity is a religion of words. And you know what? The words of this nine-year-old girl mean something to me. And the words of Scripture and the word Jesus Christ himself means something. For the record, Francis of Assisi was a preacher. He left a life of wealth in order to preach to the poor. And in 1219, according to church tradition, he crossed enemy lines to preach to a Muslim sultan in Egypt, attempting to convert him. When we did the all-in thing, and you see the the pictures of, of refugees in the Aurora campus, Pastor Travis there is a very good friend of mine, and we've talked about the people from around the world, including Muslims from the Middle East who have been coming to that church. What we say matters, and how we say it matters, and what we do matters. We don't get to separate those things. And that's part of the problem. We try to separate them. We need to use words, and we need to do what Christ does. So finally, as we enter Advent, I want to leave us with a quote about Advent from one 20th century theologian. It's a reminder and a challenge to us. And this man said that Advent helps us to understand the fullness of the value and meaning of the mystery of Christmas. It is not just about commemorating the historical event which occurred some 2,000 years ago in a little village of Judea. Instead, we must understand that our whole life should be an Advent. In vigilant expectation of Christ's final coming. To prepare our hearts to welcome the Lord who, as we say in the creed, will come one day to judge the living and the dead. We must learn to recognize his presence in the events of everyday life. Advent is then a period of intense training. That directs us decisively to the one who has already come. Who will come and who continuously comes. So, let us remember what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do this Advent season. Amen.